All right, I hope you had a great week, that you enjoy enjoying this long fall, that uh, God is, uh, you know, being good to you in that. And, uh, you know, the, the challenge with life is that you have to live it with other people. Have you noticed that? You know, like that's what makes life difficult, right? If, if you just didn't have to be, have other people around, I mean, but, you know, but, you know, that's the truth of, of, of the scriptures. And as we come to the book of Philippians, understanding he's writing to a group of people not just to, to me individually. We often read the Bible alone, which you should do, but it's in the context of, of community, of, of a group that he's speaking to them about what it means to move, keep moving forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ and live that out in a real way within the church in Philippi. You know, when I was, I was single and I went to Bible college and I was pastoring, youth pastor and and I thought I was really maturing in my faith. And, and, and I think I was maturing, but not really maturing. But I, I was like, man, I'm getting mature. And, and then, you know, Elise and I were, you know, in a relationship. And we got engaged. And then I got married. And, and we moved in together. And I just realized again at that moment that I wasn't as mature as I thought I was. Because now I have, a, you know, like a mirror to all my imperfections. And, and I just felt like I was starting to get the groove of married life. And then we started having children. And then I saw my own sinfulness again. Rushed to the surface. And it's like, oh. And then every time you come into a church or to a church gathering, a bunch of sinful, selfish people, saved by God's grace, but not yet made perfect. And boy, do we irritate each other. Get on each other's nerves. Whine to each other. Complain to each other. You know, and, and it's it just, or, or, you know, and, and, and yet, what he describes here almost seems impossible, but it's not. He invites us to the next level of, of Christian experience in community. In verses, chapter 1, verses 27 to chapter 2, verse 4. And so, um, let's jump in there. You can imagine here, of course, he's written to the Philippians. They're concerned about him because he's in a jail in, in, in Rome. They've sent money. They've sent helpers. One of their helpers got sick. He's coming back with this letter. He's going to read the letter. They're wondering, how's Paul doing? We're, we're like, is the gospel stopping because Paul's in prison? We thought the gospel was a triumphant message, right? It's Christ's death and resurrection. So if it's a triumphant message, why is he suffering? Why is he imprisoned? What's going on? Paul sends this letter back. By the way, guess what, guys? The gospel is not in chains. In fact, the gospel is spreading throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, the Imperial Guard, the elite forces, uh, a secret service of Nero himself. Everyone's here that I am in chains for Christ. So guess what? Well, it seems like my circumstances are squeezing me. In fact, they are opening doors for the gospel. So there's this biographical section in the, in the middle part of chapter 1. And then Paul brings in the D word. How? What does he think he's doing? Death. If I die, it's gain, he said. And they're like, what? You're going to die, Paul? No! You're going to die? Well, you know, and so, so, so now he's, he's saying in light of the fact that I die, but it doesn't matter whether I live or I die. For, for to me, living is Christ. Dying is gain. And if I stay, I'll help you. But if, if I go, it's glory. I mean, he's like, here's my battle, but I want to stay because I want to see you progress in your faith. But he says, in the meantime, that's the word only in chapter 1, verse 27, only... He says, as a result of everything I've said and the reality of living as Christ, dying as gain, and that I'd like to stay to help you guys out, only, you guys listen up, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Now, typically, Paul uses this word live, it's peripateo, to walk around, you know, to, to walk, to journey through life in a circumspect manner, but, but he uses a different word here. He says this is the word to live as a citizen. It's a word which would have had just power-packed meaning in the city of Philippi, which was a Roman colony. Everything that was embodied in Rome was mirrored in Philippi. They took the Roman dress. They spoke the Latin language. They followed the Roman laws and customs and, and social strata, etc., etc., etc. He's like, you get how Philippi reflects Rome. Now I want you to reflect your heavenly citizenship. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you walked into Philippi, you should, you should see what it looks like in Rome. If you walked into the Philippian church, oh, is this what heaven should look like? Live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, the gospel is good news. It's the good news that never gets old, right? Like, you know, there's news, and then, no, it's old news. Uh, you know, but it's the good news that never gets old. It's continual good news for anyone who encounters that truth. He's like, live it out so that whether I come and see you or whether I remain absent, I'm going to see that you're standing together, standing firm in one spirit with one mind contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he packs it all in here, all these words. Like, I want to see you guys standing firm. This is the soldier who's standing there waiting for the army that's coming to, towards him and not, not breaking rank. The Romans had this like human tank they called the phalanx where every soldier would, would put his spear together and on top, and it became like this human tank that would kind of walk through. But if one guy broke rank, the whole tank was broken up. You could break in there and start spearing guys. But as long as they held their spears together, held their ground, they could just, you know, arrows would bounce off the top and swords clanking against the outside. I mean, it was like this, this great, you know, warfare strategy. And he's like, I want you to hear you're standing firm. In one spirit with one mind. This Holy Spirit unifies you. And then there's this, this one mind literally means the same soul, that you have this, this, this soul connection. Why? Because you belong to God together. You're, you're Christ's. And contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. And this is the athletic metaphor. This is the team that never quits. Uh, I was watching a football game yesterday. Uh, unfortunately, our team was down 40-something to zero at the half. And it was like, this is, a, this is a disaster. And the game ended 60 to 30. So we actually won the second half, even though we lost the game, right? I mean, somehow those guys dug down deep and they found the, the resolve and the coaches did a good job of getting them, okay, look, we're down, but we're not out. Contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. The danger for churches, for Christians, speaking to those of you that have been around here a while in this kind of camp, is that we contend for the wrong things. We contend for some obscure theological position or some particular translation or some type of moral, you know, you know, standards that we feel the Bible teaches or, you know, some weird, you know, blog site or some popular teacher. We contend for them and not for the gospel. And anytime you take in anything else when you start contending for stuff that isn't the gospel, you create factions, divisions, animosity, difficulty. But the gospel brings this unity. We're fighting for the same thing. 
It's why we can have multiple churches in a city like this and, and not, not shouldn't fight with each other. Why? Because we should be contending side by side for the gospel. That every person that lives in our community that doesn't know the truth about Jesus Christ, that we would be praying and seeking and encouraging each other to reach it and to share that good news. But then we start contending for the wrong things. We get into trouble. And this is what he's reminding them. Because the danger for the Philippians was they would start to, to maybe fight against each other, right? Do you know how that works? You, you feel the stress in your life. You go through a difficult situation. And then you start biting the heads of the people closest to you. You know, couples that lose a child, sometimes that, that's a real hard on their marriage. And some grow stronger together, some eventually get divorced or have some tragedy happen in their family and it could either draw you closer or it could leave you to, you know, to, to, to leave. And, and he's like, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Why? Because the heat is coming. Things are not going to get easier. They might get tougher, but as you contend together, you get stronger together. The main verb is, is, uh, is that first verse there, first line. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Everything else explains how you do that. How do you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, you're, you're, you're standing firm in one spirit. You've got this one mind. You're contending side by side for the faith of the gospel. I have a picture here. Uh, I think there's a picture here, maybe. Is there a picture there? No picture there? <laughs> there we go. Um, all right, if you can tell. I actually had a video, but it was too big of a file, so it didn't really. These are guinea fowl. They are an ugly bird. Like, they are frightening. Like, they're, they're like Halloween kind of bird. But uh, when they move together, they kind of move in like, in like one sort of, my sister-in-law gave these to me. They're, they're great. They eat ticks. But they just, they always move together. Like, you never have one over here and one way over there. They're together. They, it's, it's like a, like a they just, they kind of keep an eye on each other. Uh, one time, they went into the big pen, because I had the door open, and, and then four of them came out, and one of them stayed in. And it was really irritating, because these other four were like, let's get going. And the, and the white one was on the inside, and she couldn't get her way through the, the you know, they're not real smart. Those heads don't have a lot of brain in them. But he's trying to get through the hole, you know, and, and they wouldn't leave. I had to go catch that white one, bring it out, and then, oh, and then they could go, they're sticking together contending side by side, attacking grasshoppers and ticks, and, and my wife hopes snakes too, right? So they're, they're looking after my yard. Now the epilogue to this story, this illustration, was last night I come home and I'm checking, checking the flock, you know, and, uh, and I look in the little pen there with my flashlight and there's only four of them. There's supposed to be five. And I'm like, oh, you know, I had this great story, great illustration, and one of them's gone. Great, you know, something of owl, coyote, something killed one of my guinea fowl. I was kind of depressed last night. Actually. I was like, man, that's a real downer. It kind of wrecks the story. But then this morning I come out and they're all outside in the pen because I, I don't let, I let them out, you know, let them run around after, but they're, they're locked in at night. And, and there, is, there is the lost one outside the pen looking inside and they're talking to each other and like, where, do we, where were you last night? I don't know, you know, I got lost, you know, and whatever, you know. But they came back. So anyway, uh, anyone's watching online here. Maybe, maybe you haven't returned to the coop yet, <laughs> but you're always welcome back here. We're, we're a little dysfunctional here. Got the bird flu once in a while, but you're always welcome back, you know? And there's joy when you return. We aren't going to criticize and judge you if you've, if you've skipped out on church for whatever reason. Come on. Come back. Because we contend together side by side. We are not 
out to shoot our own wounded. We are here to help and be a healing place. And so there's, there's my guineas. I just saw them walk, walk along the, the flower bed there, and I was like, yeah, this is the picture. we got to stick together. But sometimes we go to church, and we feel like we're all alone. Your Christian life feels like you're all alone, and, and God puts us into a, into a flock, into a herd. You know, we're called sheep. Why? Because we can move together. And if we have the good shepherd leading us, he, he keeps us unified, and he takes us to the places that he wants us to go, contending side by side for the faith of the gospel, like some ugly guinea fowl, right? There we go. You know, that's, that's the church, right? So, um, and then he says in uh, verse 28, and by not being intimidated in any way by your opponents, this is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, a sign which is from God, not being Afraid. The, the word literally comes out of the, the picture of, of, of a horse that is spooked. We, we used to work at a camp in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, and, and there were some wild horses. I think the ones that were close to the camp were probably feral horses, but, but they were pretty, pretty wild. And so you'd, you'd hike over a ridge, and you'd come down into a meadow, and there would be these horses, and they would see you, and all of a sudden, boom, they're gone. Scattered, you know, back into the trees. You don't see them again, right? And you, so you kind of glimpse of them, and all you see is their, you know, their tails swishing as they go away from you, right? And he's like, we don't need to scatter and run every time the heat gets turned up on us. To live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ means that we live without this fear or intimidation. Like we're, you know, or I thought of like, like those, um, you know, those fainting goats, you know? You know, they get, they get freaked out. They, you know, some Christians do that, right? Oh, the pressure's on. Oh, I'll pretend I'm dead. Maybe, they, you know, maybe they'll go away, you know? You know, like, like we're not fainting goats, people. Not being intimidated. Because when they see a Christian standing firm, they kind of wonder, how do they stand firm? Maybe they believe in something that is triumphant. Maybe they have something deeper than the present life that we live in, and we do. It's a risen Christ. It's a sign of our salvation, which is from God. When we stand firm in our faith, this is not fighting, this is not being antagonistic, but this is just being, being resolved and you know, having that steadfastness of saying, no, we don't need to be afraid. We can stand strong. We are the church. We are God's people. We're doing what he's called us to do. And whatever else happens, who cares? Which is the example of the early church in the first century that Paul himself was living out. He's sitting in a jail cell. Uh, or in a prison in, in Rome, chained to a prisoner. Uh, the likelihood of him getting out is possible, but not certain. But he's like, we're not intimidated by any means, because we know who we're serving, and we know how this ends. And then he brings up this difficult topic in verse uh, 29. For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him. I don't know if you were told this when you were first told the gospel. That, by the way, when you receive Christ, you have your sins forgiven. You are given a new standing. You're, you're declared righteous in God's sight. Not anything that you do to earn that. Uh, you don't gain salvation by working hard and, and, and pleasing God. You get it by an act of faith in what Christ did on the cross. But after you come to faith in Christ, you begin to grow and you put your heart and mind in, in, into following Jesus. But part of that, a significant part of that, is you're going to suffer. It's going to be hard. You're going to feel the pressure. 
it has been granted to you not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Now, I'm not saying you have to include that in your gospel presentation, but it's a reality of Christ. If they crucified the most perfect, glorious, loving person that ever existed on this earth, do you think they're going to treat you any better? There is not a nicer guy, a better person, a more benevolent heart, a more gracious individual than Christ himself. And look, look how they treated him. So when you identify with Christ, guess what? Some of that splashes onto you. Kids at your school aren't going to like the fact that you have a standard. The people at work maybe don't appreciate your honesty. Your neighbors may, you know, may, may find your morality to be nauseating. Um, I mean, we are pretty narrow-minded, right, as Christians. Let's be honest, right? I mean, if we, if we take the Bible at, at, at face value, right, like, like we would suggest that, for instance, sexuality is, is, is reserved for a man and a woman in a covenant relationship according to the Word of God. I mean, we're ruining a lot of fun for a lot of people when we say that. You know what I mean? Like, like this is how narrow it is. And then, and then you add other things to that, and you're like, you're like wow. But, but, then, but then the truth of the matter is there's this spiritual battle underneath that we don't see, but it's there where Satan is always trying to, to slow down the progress of the gospel. And he'll do it from the outside, and then he'll do it from the inside. And he's like, you're going to suffer, but stay unified. I'll come to that in chapter 2. But see in verse 30 it says, since you are encountering the same conflict that you saw me face, and now hear that I'm facing. So, so things in Philippi are getting tougher, but he's like, guess what? It's coming to you. It came to me. This is what it means to follow Jesus. You know, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. What do you think he meant when he said that? He said, your, your life is going gonna, is gonna to die and you're going to live a new life through my life. But as you follow me, life is not always going to be easy, but it's the right life and it glorifies God and you find joy in that life. I have a picture here of uh, a guy from Bangladesh. His name is Rafi, or Rafakil. He converted to Christianity out of the Muslim faith. Muslim background believer Rafi, Rafi and his family are victims of extreme intolerance. Their perpetrators have been trying for a long time to kick Rafi out of his own home and land, and now his house has been burnt to ashes. There is nothing left. It happened so suddenly. When Rafi and his family left the house in the morning, they never expected their home to be gone by the time they came back in the afternoon. Rafi and his family are all converts from Islam who live in a small village in northern Bangladesh. They are the only Christian family in the neighborhood. On the 25th of August, Rafi and his family had gone out to complete their daily work. Sometime in the afternoon, Rafi had heard his home, about his home from someone in the village. He rushed home to see the damage that had taken place. Everything was burnt from the ceiling to the floor except for his Bible and a few adult literacy books. A miracle indeed. Seeing that everything was burnt except for Rafi's Bible sparked curiosity among some of his neighbors. They wondered why the Bible and adult literacy books had remained unburned. The source of the fire is not identified. No one was home to have a fire burning in the morning. And there was no witnesses to testify how the fire started or where it came from. The neighboring Muslims have been persecuting the family for the last couple of months, said Rafi, Rafi's local pastor. The perpetrators have attacked the family and even filed a false report stating that Rafi harassed them. The perpetrators have been trying to grab their land and property for a long time. Rafi assumes this reason for this tragedy is because the extremists in the village wanted them out of the village, and he believes there is no other reason for it. Since the incident, Rafi and his family have been sleeping under the open skies with just a small plastic roof over their heads to shelter them from the rain. There are nine of them in the family. 
No one in the neighborhood was willing to help them because they'd converted to the Christian faith. With nothing but the clothes on their back from the day's work, Rafi and his family have survived the worst. Open Doors, local partner in Bangladesh, have supported them with food and a new clothes. Rafi and his family have managed to slowly rebuild their home in a simple way to keep dry from the rainy season. However, they could still use your prayers. I'm just saying that this is happening today. People are being persecuted and suffering for their faith. It's a real reality. And the thing about Christianity is it gives us a reason for suffering. All the other religions don't have an answer for that. Or their answer is, well, you were bad in a previous life, so now you're suffering. So if you just get through the suffering and die, maybe you'll reincarnate to a better life. Like that's, that's how one pe- person answers it, right? So just, well, that's your lot. Oh, well, that's why in those cultures they don't help each other. Because, well, you obviously did something bad, so that's why you are where you are. Isn't that nice? And the gospel comes along and says, no, that's not the way. We should help people in suffering. We should encourage those that are, that are, that are in, in difficulty. We should, we should step in and, and, and serve one another. It's totally different. Have you suffered for Christ? Have you felt the pressure of identifying as a believer in Jesus Christ? Some of you know this in your schools. You, you felt this. Some of you maybe have this in your workplace. Maybe in your extended family. There's the antagonism when you show up because you're that person, you're that family. But it's been granted to you. You can trust in Jesus. He will carry you through. Take up your cross daily. When we, when we serve together, we get stronger together. I would like what Peter had to say. The life which is identified with the gospel will be a constant warfare. I'm afraid that the most that most present-day Christians are like an army of zombies. <laughs> they have put on the uniform, learned the drills, but stayed away from the field of battle. As long as they can roost, they don't care who roasts. They happily pray, others perish. And this is like, this is before Netflix and zombie shows. Like, he wrote this book, right? He's like, you know, we, we, we walk around, we talk about this, but he's like, when you engage in the gospel ministry, expect opposition. We are facing that as a church right now. There's weird stuff happening internally. And it's because I think we're trying to preach the gospel. We're trying to reach. We've got this alpha ministry going. We're trying to spread in. And the enemy's finding any little crack in someone's armor here. And weird stuff's happening. We've got to be careful about this. Because then he comes into chapter 2 and he says, here's how to get along with each other. Verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ any comfort provided by love, any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection or mercy. It's this long introduction. What are you saying? This is the reality of what you have. You have experienced the encouragement of Christ. How did Because when you were a sinner, Christ died for you. He came and lifted you up out of the grave and brought you to new life. You were dying. You had no hope. You had no life. You were in darkness, and he grabbed you out of that six-foot hole brought you to your feet, and now you're walking in newness of life. You have the encouragement of Christ that despite the vileness of your sinful condition, he still saved you by his grace. You have that encouragement. You have the comfort provided by love. 
You have the reality that you know that you sit in a position of love from the Father in heaven. Eternal love. That, that nothing will ever stop. Romans 8 says that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Even the most vilest sin that you could commit cannot separate you from God's love. Except, of course, the sin to deny that Jesus is the Christ. I mean, that, that's the one exception. But, but you, you think about that. Is it. Are you serious, Mike? I mean, you, you dig your own hole. I'm saying this. You that struggle with this idea of eternal security, I mean, we don't need to figure out who's saved, who's not saved. People that walk in sin dig their own holes. They walk into their own traps. They tie a barbed wire around their legs and are trying to walk through life. They have created their own burdens. But God's love never stops. The Father's heart just breaks for, for lost and, and sinful people. But he says, yes, I bring you back. I receive you. You're always welcome. And the comfort of his love carries us through life. The comfort of his love. And then he talks about this fellowship in the Spirit. It, it, it's what you experience when you're with a group of believers and you're moving together and you're serving together and there's this, there's this, this feeling of, 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 of unity. Now, some of you have this feeling when, when you play on a team together or you, you go to the rink together or whatever, wherever you're hanging out and you're thinking that's, that's fellowship. But no, the fellowship of the Spirit is deeper than that. It's a sense that we are related to each other even though we're, we're not. Um, Lisa and I and my family can, can go to Russia and sit around a table with a bunch of Russians that we know, that we all share a common faith, and there's this unity. I, I feel a closest, a stronger affinity around that table than I do with my own blood relatives. It's a weird thing. What is it? It's the fellowship of the Spirit. Where we're ministering to them, they're ministering to us, and it's like this. It's like, how come we love each other and we feel so connected? It's the Spirit. You know, I really want that for our church. We don't always have that. We come here out of obligation. We kind of check off. I went to church today. But the fellowship of the Spirit is this intentional engagement relationally with each other. No matter how much we preach about it and talk about it, it's something that you have to do on your, on your own initiative. I can't really make you do it. But it's beautiful when you have it. Nothing compares with it. Teenagers and young adults and older adults long to be part of a group somewhere and be accepted and be, be acknowledged and be recognized. And God's designed the church to do that. If only we could figure out how to do that well. If the, any of these things are true, he says, any affection or mercy. Again, that's that word for that, that deepness of compassion and mercy. And he's like, if you're part of a church, you should have experienced some type of compassion at some point. You know, someone maybe doesn't even know you well, comes and says, I know you just went through a hard time. I know you just lost someone or something happened in your family with your kids, whatever. And, and I'm just, you know, praying for you. And you're like, wow, why do they care? It's because they have the love of God in their hearts and you're part of the family. Any compassion or mercy. Then he comes to the second command in this passage. He says, complete my joy and be of the same mind. You know, literally fill up my joy, Philippians, and, and develop some biblical psychology here. A same mind, uh, uh, an inner harmony in place of the strife and self-interest. He's like, you know, have the same perspective. And he's going to talk about this, this, uh, this word again throughout the book, but he's like, cultivate this attitude and, and approach to life. 
Because when you do that, you, you fill up my joy. And then he explains what that looks like. And, and we're coming to the impossible part of the passage. He says, have the same love. Be united in spirit. Have one purpose. It's like, be the same mind. and, and you're, you're. So what is that purpose? To be right? To get my way? To have someone recognize me? Someone feel sorry for me? What's your purpose? To glorify Christ. To think, how can we present the gospel? How can we live out the gospel? How can we exemplify our, our, our heavenly citizenship with each other? And then it gets to the verse 3, which I really find irritating. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. There are texts like this that should just be like a thorn in your sock. Every time you step, it pokes into your toe, and you're like, oh. Selfish ambition is that... Um, you know, the desire to get your way. And vanity, I mean, these are synonymous terms. Vanity actually is this, this Greek word that includes the idea of empty conceit. It refers to a person who's conceited without reason, deluded, ambitious for his own reputation, challenging others to rivalry, himself jealous of others. Consequently, this is a person who will fight to prove one's idea is right. You know, if you've ever been a small group and you have this person, it's just awful because they always have to have the last word on everything. Get rid of those things. Get rid of those things. And he says, take on this humility. I like what C.S. Lewis said to say, pride is the mother hen under which all other sins are hatched. <laughs> humility is essential to successful relationships. It is the oil that makes the intersecting gears of human personalities turn without grinding on each other. Isn't that beautiful? Humility. It's putting others ahead of yourself. And that's completely unnatural. And in fact, our society would say, that's not even healthy. You need to claim everything for yourself. You are a victim. And you need to just embrace that and, and move forward and, and find all the oppressors in your life. And, and then you'll find freedom. No, 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 no. The Bible says it's the opposite. Humility. Emptying of yourself. And taking on the life of Jesus that actually brings healing and wholeness to life. And looking to help others even more than your own needs. People did that for you this morning. You understand that? They showed up and they made coffee so that you could come and have coffee this morning. They were thinking of your needs. Uh, this team got up early. Some of them drive half an hour to church and, and they were practicing. Why? Because they were thinking of your needs to worship corporately together and they, they were serving you this morning. Right now, right now, men and women are serving and, and young people downstairs for your children so that you can enjoy this service without kids crawling on you and screaming and all that stuff. And they're enjoying it better down there than they would up here anyway, right? So we've got a great partnership going on with the people downstairs. They're serving your needs even above their own. Treat one another as more important than yourself. And then it talks about in verse 4, 
Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. How absolutely unnatural this is. You know, I remember walking into a church with my baby, Carsey. And I'm not picking on anyone here today, but understand, I came into the church, the church was crowded. And there's seats right in the middle of the row. Do you know how awkward it is to bring a car seat into the middle of the row? Do you think anyone would look and say, oh, there's a young couple with a car seat. Maybe we should move into the middle of the row so they can have the end of the row. That would be two, three, and four put into action. There was a party once I was hosting on grade six. We lived at a Bible camp, so the Bible, the, my birthday party was going to be at the Bible camp, which is the coolest place for a birthday party. We stayed in the cabin. We got to ride on the canoes. The lake where we lived had turtles, so my guys were catching turtles and stuff. I mean, everyone was excited about Mike Nidalco's party. But there was one kid I, I didn't really like in the class. He irritated me. And I decided I wasn't going to invite him to my party. Small school, small class. Everyone knew. I mean, it was, you know, it was kind of the unspoken thing. And, and as, even as a grade sixer, I was deeply convicted about my selfishness in that moment. And, and I was like, you know, that's awful. How can I be so proud and so rude and so mean to this guy? And so I invited him, Kevin, and he came. And, and I, I, we had a good time, but, you know, I, I, I still feel like, you know, that was so, that was so bad. That was such a, like, you know, I mean, he was irritating me. I think one of the other guys talked to me and said, well, I don't want to invite him to your party. And I, I kind of got caught up in that spirit of, of, of vanity and selfish ambition. And I thought, you know, what, what a horrible thing. That's why I didn't invite him. He came, the whole class came. We had a great time. But, you know, we get in these moments where we start just thinking about ourselves and we start excluding others and, and it's ugly and it's dangerous. And he's like, don't think about yourselves, but about the interests of others, even above your own interests. Psychologist Carl Menninger was reportedly asked what he would do if he knew someone was on the, if he was on a verge of a nervous breakdown. His reply, he said, I'd go out, find somebody in need and help him. So we're camping this summer at Fintry Provincial Park on the Okanagan Lake, and there's this little creek that comes down into the, into the lake there, and there's a waterfall. So we hike up this stairs, 670-some stairs, up to the top of the waterfall, and hot and sweaty. And, and then we notice the trail keeps going. So we're like, let's go see where that trail goes. So we go up, and then the trail comes to a fence. And there's like barbed wire on the side, and, but clearly, People have been walking on the other side of that fence. There is a path there. So you're not supposed to go there. But of course, human nature, curiosity, we go around the barbed wire and onto that path. And we find this, this concrete bridge there. Like it's this little narrow, it was used for the aquedation, uh, aqueduct or the, the pipes for bringing water from the top of the waterfall down to the farm that used to be there. And it's like this 12 inch wide concrete bridge. Parts of it have crumbled away. On the side is this mountain wall, and to the other side is like a drop, 40 feet down. And of course, what do my kids do? They go down the bridge. They're walking, they're going to the end, and then they disappear around the corner. And I'm like, okay, so I'm looking at the bridge, and I'm, and I'm starting to feel weak, you know, a little, a little dizzy, right? It's hot. 
uh, probably you're getting a little dehydrated and then just looking down there, I'm just like, whoo, that's a little dizzying, right? And so Lisa's behind the fence because she's the oldest rule keeper, right? <laughs> I'm the middle, I'm already, you know, and my kids are gone, right? I'm like, what do I do? And you know, and, and so I, I start walking down that thing. And I, 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 my head is spinning. Where I can, I can push against the rock, but there's parts there where I, you, can't, you can't reach the rock here and it's just straight down here. So you're, you're walking. It's like, it's like Indiana Jones, you know, where he throws the, you know, I'm, I'm walking on this thing and I'm just like, oh man, and oh, queasy. And I get to the end and then, oh, oh, there's actually a little pool there and my kids are jumping in the water. And, you know, and so we, we get out there and we, you know, we get back. And, and so the next day we're saying, we're going to take mom to the pool because she didn't come down that day. So the next day before we left, we hiked back up there and the kids, boom, they're gone. They're over the bridge and down the pool. And, and Elise and I now, the old people, are, are crawling across this bridge. And I'm helping her. And amazingly, as I'm helping her, I'm not dizzy. I'm not queasy. I'm not even thinking of that falling down. I'm just thinking of helping Elisa. It's like, wow, so suddenly when I'm doing something for others, now suddenly my own fears and issues were gone because I just was trying to help her navigate this scary, precipitous, you know, situation, right? And it's like, wow, isn't that amazing how that works in the church? If you come always just to get your own needs filled and look for me and what I want, I mean, you'll continue to find that this vortex of, of this tornado kind of just sticks around you. Problems are always there. But suddenly when you step outside of that vortex to help someone else, then it kind of, the tornado just drifts away and you're suddenly helping others. And that's the beauty of the gospel. It's Christ laying himself down for the needs of others before his own needs. We're going to talk about that next week in detail as we celebrate communion and as we, as we celebrate Thanksgiving together. Uh, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, just a great hymn of the early church on, on the humiliation of Christ. How do you do this? You need to, we need Christ's help. But it is the key to getting along with each other. It's serving each other, putting others ahead of yourself. It is the most unnatural thing that I will ask you to do this week. But it could be the most life-giving thing you do. Thinking about the needs of others. If you're in a marriage, that's your spouse, your children. If you live in a community or an apartment building or a neighborhood, I mean, it's thinking about your neighbors. How can you serve them? You know, I get up in the morning and, and I have this heel walk, so I'm clump, 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 clump. But then I got to think, oh, I got kids sleeping below me. I probably shouldn't be clumping around, you know. It's trying to, trying to remember those things, right? Because you're thinking, I, I'm not just living by myself. I'm not a bachelor. I need to, I'm not living in the basement on the concrete. I'm not living, you know, I, I got to think about this. I want to do this, but, but how does that affect the people that I live with? And, and, and it changes your whole attitude, your perspective, and then you're living out your life as a citizen of the, of the heavenly kingdom, as a, as, a, as, as, a, you know, as a gospel of Christ is coming out in real terms in your life. And you begin to think about others ahead of yourself. And so church, we hit an intersection here. We could continue with shallow Christianity or we could move forward. But it means that we all have to leave a little bit of ourselves behind and start looking out for each other more.
And that's the choice that God gives us. Either you come to church for yourself or come to church for others. Be a part of the gospel ministry for yourself or for others. I mean, it's a choice. We hit the crossroads. I'm, I'm going to put aside my own preferences for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the other people's growth. I'm going I'm to move forward. I'm going to contend side by side. Or I'm going to come in and demand my right. I'm going to argue with people. I'm going to debate. I'm going to post stuff on social media that's inflammatory or difficult. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do all this stuff because I, I have a right to do it. No, no, no. He laid aside his rights. We lay aside our rights. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but the interests of others as well. I hope you're irritated by this word. I hope it nags on your soul today because this is a key part of the transformation Jesus wants to do in our life. Painful, but with such great blessings attached to it you trust Jesus for that today? Team, would you come up and lead us in the closing song? This text is, is, um, is powerful and uh, I hope we will take that step to just move into that place of unity and partnership and missional connection as, as we serve the Lord together here at, at New Life Community Church. And so would you pray with me as we, as we uh, prepare to sing our final song here? So Lord, help us to live our lives worthy of the gospel of Christ today. Give us that same mind, the mind of Christ. And so would you increase our love, our unity in the spirit, the mercy and compassion that we have for each other. Give us opportunities to put others' needs ahead of our own. And so conform us to Christ in the way we live, the way we think, the way we behave, that you would be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone this week, look out for someone who has a need that you can minister to. And so put the word of God into practice. And now may the word of Christ dwell in you richly. May the Spirit's presence draw us to greater unity. May God's love compel us forward with the gospel of Christ into our community. That his name be glorified and that people would come to know him. And so we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said,